0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in
1: Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.
0: Lord God, we've gathered around your word, and we continue to worship you. We ask for your help. This morning as we talk together about the Sermon on the Mount, Uh, together we give you praise. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. Amen. Well, uh, we got about halfway through this sheet um, last Sunday, uh, the Sermon on the Mount and self-denial. Playing off what was the message text from Mark last week, whoever wants to be my disciple, see the italicized quote underneath the title, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. For whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. And what I wanted to do, uh, and we started last week, was to take the topic of self-denial and trace it through the Sermon on the Mount and to understand sort of the shape of that Sermon on the Mount. This, as interesting, this is my fifth week um, with some of you, maybe one or two of you. Um, And it's uh, it's probably the most uh, uh, non-linear course I've taught here. Because usually you would take the Sermon on the Mount and work through it paragraph by paragraph. But instead, almost each time, we've kind of taken it in its entirety and looked at it. And hopefully it's had something of a prism effect that we've looked at it from different angles. The main angle has been how do you read the Sermon on the Mount in the secular age, as opposed to its first horizon when the law was in place. And then taking sort of this uh, concern for self-denial and tracing it through. If you were asked to describe the ideal self, What would come to your mind? How would you begin to describe the ideal person, the ideal self? Would you have a place to turn to that gives you that description? I'm teaching a course at Beeson on preaching and culture. And this past week we read a book, Matthew Kim who teaches at Gordon-Conwell on preaching with cultural intelligence. And the idea of being able to be sensitive and empathetic with various uh, types of people. So he has a chapter on denominations, preaching where there's a denominational variety to a congregation, in a congregation, or uh, ethnicities, um, or genders. Uh, To what degree are we sensitive to the diversity of people? And I uh, began to think about the Sermon on the Mount in relationship to that diversity of culture and diversity of personalities and uh, what that looks like. And I realized that the ideal self might be described differently by Mountain Brook people than Bessemer people you might get a kind of different dialogue going as to the ideal self. And you stretch that out and you might get a different definition, a different description of the ideal self if you were in Nigeria, as opposed to um, Newark, New Jersey. Culture does play uh, a, a difference in how we look at life. But then I realized that the Sermon on the Mount would be a place for the African believer as well as the Latin American believer as well as the American believer to turn to as a Jesus-guided description of the person, of the ideal self. And it would be wonderful if uh, in the global church a person were asked, describe the ideal self, and they turn to, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who are meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed who are those that are pure in heart, uh, for they will see God. If that were the description of the ideal self. Now does that sound too idealistic? Does it sound too idealistic to say, you know, that You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Uh, Is it too idealistic to say that our righteousness needs to surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? Is it too idealistic to hear you have heard it said, uh, and that's what we're going to talk about in a moment. You've heard it said, but I say to you uh, and see the. And the Sermon on the Mount has been uh, a go-to text for me over the years, but it's interesting. I go to it now, and it seems very fresh to go to. Uh, But I've worked through the Sermon on the Mount in San Diego. I've worked through the Sermon on the Mount in northern Ghana. I've worked through the Sermon on the Mount in Cambodia. I've worked through the Sermon on the Mount in Mongolia because I think it is the go-to text for describing the Christian life. It is that uh, three-chapter composite description of what it is to, I have given you life and life abundantly. It is what it is to uh, go and preach the gospel, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Uh, It is what gives in just a... It's such a a beautiful description of the Christian life, which is global, cross-cultural, transcultural. So today we're looking uh, at, and we've, uh, this one page front and back gives you kind of a description of the breakdown that I see. Now, you see the middle column in this description? For those of you who, this is your first crack at this. Uh, The Beatitudes are the first section of the Sermon on the Mount and oftentimes confused with the totality of the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody thinks it's just the Beatitudes, uh, and that's just the intro, the character description. And then the commands, uh, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and then the third division in the Sermon on the Mount, the devotions, um, which deals with the hidden righteousness of giving and praying and fasting. And you turn the page and the prohibitions um, Do not store up treasures on earth where moth and rust uh, break in and uh, and destroy, but store up treasures uh, in heaven. And then the final imperatives that begin with ask, seek, and knock, and then the decisive choice between a narrow gate and a broad gate, between true prophets and false prophets, um, between building on the rock or building on the sand. And there you have it. Now, what I've been interested to do um, is to see what is the original sort of uh, and not just original religious response and what is the secular response to these divisions in the Sermon on the Mount. Have I confused anybody so far? Or it's just all so simple? Um, So we looked at the first three, but let's take the first one again just in terms of prototype. Let's read the middle column first and then take its alternatives. So Jesus' Beatitudes sweep aside both religious platitudes and secular principles. The gospel puts an end to self-justification, self-pity, self-sufficiency, self-indulgence, and self-centeredness. The focus is on the mercy of God who transforms the person in community. In Christ, the disciple is wholeheartedly devoted to the will of God in daily living. So that's taking the Beatitudes as kind of an eightfold description of the character of the believer that's grace based. It's a state of grace, not a means of grace. You're not striving to kind of be poor, striving to be meek. It is accepting your place before God in all humility and by his grace. Now compare that to the typical religious or religion as usual in the first column. Religion cares for the individual's felt needs. Self-esteem is fragile, nurtured with care. Spirituality is shaped by tradition and the spirit of the times, the magisterium of the people. By that, I mean that we still sort of stay in charge in a religious tradition, guides and motivates the religious consumer. Sermons and religious practices motivate the individual to do better, be better, try harder. Religion is a means of self-justification and self-affirmation. That's a kind of typical religious response to the concern of the self. Now, look over at the third column, the late modern secular, because I'm trying to see the Sermon on the Mount as speaking to both the religious and the secular. The late modern secular, the self operates within an imminent frame and is tasked with creating and articulating meaning. The source of the moral order is the self. There is no transcendent meaning or purpose. Principles such as tolerance and human rights and justice and mutual benefit are the product of social convention. The will to power is subversive, tamed, respectable, and enlightened. By that I mean that the will to power is, in a sense, Still there, a a Nietzsche form of response to gaining my significance, the will to power, but it's tamed, it's respectable, it's enlightened. So you see how the Sermon on the Mount sort of cuts through both the religious as well as the secular version of the self. Any comment or response to that? And I love it when students disagree with me. Uh, there are some props at Beeson Divinity School that no one would ever disagree with. And then there's some that, like me, that seem to invite it uh, and get it. Uh, I think that's good for discussion and for interaction and for understanding in the long run. Um, does that make sense to you?
1: The actual verse, whoever wants to be my, dis- my disciple must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. All right. Whoever will save their life. That to me has always seemed like martyrdom. See, it says, um wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life, for me and for the sake of the gospel, that this martyrs.
0: Well, then we would have very few mm-hmm. Right. that would right. fit that description. Yeah.
1: Well, someone told me a long time ago, in fact, it was my pastor. I used to go to the Lutheran church. He told me, you know, where, where I was comparing verses, and he told me that that they are keys, that the verses are keys. And in other words, you really select what you want, what fits you or your situation safely.
0: Well, uh, this pastor would probably be (laughs) suggesting to you that all of us ought to fit in this description of taking up our cross and following. And if you wanted a biblical kind of rationale for that, I think you'd find it in Jesus' description of the upper room, where the servanthood of uh, washing one another's feet, that being a parable, that being a description of real service for one another, is tied to the meaning of the cross. It's kind of like a continuum. And we find ourselves on that cross-shaped continuum everywhere from washing one another's feet to dying as a martyr because of your direct witness to Jesus Christ. And we all land land on that continuum if we're faithful followers of Christ.
1: If you just take it, I think at face value, if you treat it literally, it seems like it could be interpreted on that level. See, that that verse, martyrdom, okay, the people who died, you know, in the Roman amphitheater,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. (coughs) or you could have a generalized meaning. Meaning, what your what your sign suggest?
0: Well, martyr means you know the 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 word martyr means witness and there is a range to our witness Um, there you know as the Apostle Paul said I want to know Christ I want to know the fellowship of his suffering and the power of his resurrection and I think that applies to all of us the fellowship of his suffering and the power of his resurrection Um, and that's that's pertinent as a description for all Christians everywhere. And here, the Sermon on the Mount in the sense of uh, what self-denial means is that I'm not self-justifying. My life isn't revolved around self-pity. I'm not self-sufficient. I'm not self-indulgent. I'm not self-centered. I'm Christ-centered because I understand what it is to be totally dependent upon him, to mourn for my sin, to be uh, submissive to the will of God, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's a description of the ideal self. From a Christian standpoint, I don't expect uh, either the urban, suburban, and rural person to come up with that description unless they're in Christ. Well, we talked about the commands last week. We talked about, well, I think we got to the devotions. So let's come down to the devotions. And up until this point in the Sermon on the Mount, it's let your light shine so that people may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And then in chapter 6, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets. He goes on to talk about giving and praying and fasting. Sarah, by the way, that was excellent this morning. It was just really good, really good. Very concise, uh, very to the point, And uh, I think you nailed the, the two reasons for giving uh, very well. But this is a hidden righteousness. It is not the social visible righteousness of love instead of hate, purity instead of lust, fidelity instead of infidelity, honesty instead of dishonesty. That's what the world is supposed to see. And if you've been here in the study, we've talked about that. But now this is the hidden righteousness. This is between the Father and myself uh, in terms of understanding how to develop a communion with God. So reading the middle column first, the cross-bearing self-denial, Jesus uses the devotions, giving, praying, fasting, to set in contrast the small world of our making with the large world of God's saving. That's how we enter into that large world through prayer, through giving, through fasting, through our worship. And Jesus examines the motives and practices of true communion with God, not as a performance, but as a relational act of faithfulness. God's truth becomes internalized and actualized through daily communion with God. This is how Jesus' kingdom ethic becomes embedded in our hearts and lives. So it's a new view of spirituality. It's an understanding of communion that is not a matter of uh, performance-based or showing people. Uh, The showing people is the visible righteousness uh, that is described in chapter 5. Chapter 6, it is that hidden righteousness. Now compare that to the religious and the secular. Let's read the typical religious. Religion tends to be performance-oriented with an external set of spiritual practices and disciplines that prove to others the genuineness of the individual's commitment. Pious acts are used to convince others and sometimes ourselves that we are worthy members in good standing. Spiritual practices provide important coping strategies. Their value is perceived as psychological and emotional. That's really different. The typical religious is very different from the cross-bearing self-denial. Because you can pull off the typical religious in kind of socially, traditional, conventional ways that really are not an expression of your heart. They are not soulful. Uh, they're religious, but they're not soulful. Now looking at the late modern secular. Instead of embodied truth fleshed in forms of character and action, we live in our heads. The excarnated ideals of the modern moral order are framed as imminent abstract ideals in a society of strength. That sounds, I know that sounds really complicated, but it isn't. The excarnated, now as opposed to incarnated. The excarnated. I'm living, uh, I'm living on one dimension, the horizontal, humanistic, secular dimension. And so, therefore, those things that might count as spiritual are those things that I consider as coping mechanisms. They're ways, whether it's diet. Um, or conversations or counseling or therapy. They're ways that I use to cope. They don't necessarily they probably don't have anything to do with God or my relationship with God. The excarnated ideals of the modern moral order are framed as imminent abstract ideals in a society of strangers, each free to do their own thing. Oh, one of the things you realize reading and both in reading modern novels and watching movies is the fundamental loneliness of this culture. Just the fundamental loneliness. We are unto ourselves and um, to the degree that people help us cope with ourselves, we like them. When they are not helpful to our coping with ourselves, we tend to not like them or we avoid them. People may say they are spiritual who have no interest in God whatsoever. So looking at uh, spirituality from that standpoint of the religious versus the secular, self-denial I think is a really great way to fulfillment. Well, turning the page, the prohibitions. Do not store up treasures on earth. Do not worry. Do not uh, serve both God and And money, those do nots in the Sermon on the Mount. uh, Again, we're taking this overview. You could spend the whole time on one of those do nots. But the thesis I have in the Sermon on the Mount is that those do nots are the key to our freedom, our liberty. If we followed those do nots as opposed to sort of the religious, moralistic do not, do not do this, do not do that, uh, these are a complete, these are really a different set of do nots. In this case, let's read the typical religious first. Religion operates with a selective list of do's and don'ts. Morality is often a short list of enculturated concerns designed to promote the good life. Conservatives and liberals alike engage in this selective morality, only with different concerns. Today's laid-back, easy-going, connect-the-dots, paint-by-number Christianity on sale everywhere is not found in Jesus' call to self-denial. Do these do not require something from us? I think they do. Uh, there is a constancy, a, uh, an immediacy, about not worrying about our physical material self. Uh, and there's a difference between uh, discernment and worry here. reading the middle column, Jesus' targeted self-denials resist the ideology and practices of materialism, the propensity to self-righteousness, and guilt-generated forced evangelism. Do not share the gospel with uh, dogs, uh, with pigs. Uh, Do not cast your pearls before pigs. Uh, Really harsh, difficult language. Certain limitations liberate and Jesus spells them out. Obedience is not a matter of appearance. Jesus insists on going to the heart of the matter and severing the tie that binds our souls to the ways of the world. A new way of living uh, that's supposed to aim for being worry-free and God-dependent. I don't think anyone ever arrives or nails this down. But this is what Jesus is holding out to. What it is not to worry. And, you know, some of us, to to various degrees, have have had to learn how to do that with our children. How not to worry. Uh, uh, My uh, middle son... uh, Loves the ocean and has been a surfer for a number of years, a professional lifeguard for 10 years, uh, both in NCD is California and then in Costa Rica where he and Janini now live. Uh, and uh, there was a certain point when he was a teenager where I had to just say to the Lord, okay, this, this is his inclination, this is his calling, this is what he loves doing. I just got to give that over to you. Because uh, there were weekly uh, experiences that, uh, you know, he's had a number of concussions. He's I mean, he's just, uh, last week he took a 15-foot wave on his head in Nicaragua. Uh, you know, and I have to just sort of, I would either worry about him all the time or give him up to the Lord for uh, his care and safety and uh, trust that he has discernment and, uh, And he has literally rescued hundreds of people who otherwise would have died. This was more in Costa Rica than it was in Encinitas, but he had some horror stories in California. Um, And I think my relationship with him is much better when I'm trusting in the Lord about him rather than worrying about him. It changes my conversation with him if I'm trusting in the Lord about him. And I thank the Lord that there's somebody like that who knows the ocean well enough to be able to rescue people. You know? I mean, somebody should do that. Um, So, uh, yeah, I'm just trying to illustrate in one small little way the, the do not worry aspect of what Jesus is getting at. And, of course, that develops the communion with God. On behalf of my son. Um, and you can all, I'm only giving that illustration because you can play that out immediately in terms of your own thinking about friends and children uh, and maybe grandchildren. Um, and we didn't read, did we read the late sec- modern secular? I don't think so. The third column there the self resists outside authorities pronouncing prohibitions. Freedom is the ability to be unencumbered by any limitation imposed from outside the willful self. The ambition and drive to realize our material goals not only satisfies the self, but often benefits others in the wake of our success. The criteria for success, success is determined by the self. You get the idea, don't you? In the late modern secular age, the self rules in every dimension. It is the self. That's the foundation, that's the reason for existence, it is the self. In the cross-bearing self-denial, it is in my relationship with a God who was crucified and rose from the dead. Uh, This is uh, an offense to an immanent world that knows no transcendence, that knows no outside revelation, but it is what I believe in. It it is our conviction uh, in the body of Christ. Well, under the uh, conclusion of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the imperatives, you know, ask, seek, not, choose the narrow gate, not the broad way, uh, discern between true prophets and false prophets, uh, and build your house, not on the sand, but on the rock. Let's begin with the cross-bearing self-denial and contrast them. Jesus calls us to act wisely, because there are extraordinary consequences to our actions. Uh, You know, I often hear at the Advent, and you've heard me say this now, those of you who have been in the group, uh, I can't do this. What's laid out for me in God's word, I can't do. But God can do. Somebody said that last week, and it just sort of echoed in my brain all week. Um, The refrain, well, you can't do it, but if you rest in God, God can do it. That's true, but I hope that we don't communicate a kind of just let go and let God attitude. That I'm not responsible. That somehow in my weakness, I de lot responsible as myself that I'm not accountable I think if anything the Sermon on the Mount makes us exceedingly accountable um, it really which which gate are you going to go through the narrow or the broad one uh, who are you listening to true prophets or false prophets and you can judge them by their fruit um, and what are you building on what are you what am I building on? Uh, that we really can choose the right path or the wrong path. There is an accountability, a responsibility here. Uh, and I, and the more you get into the Christian life, the more you realize that how this, this affects everything. This affects exercise and food and time and... Um, this, you know, I just can't. Um, I can't say I'm not going to relate because I have a more introverted personality. I can't. I can't simply say that. Uh, Christ would have me relate. <laughs> I can't hide behind my personality, and say, "Well, that's just not me." Uh, my me keeps getting shaped by Christ. And it's you know sometimes that process is painful, and I think it's it's never ending. I I think uh, no matter how long I live, I will be constantly stretched in ways that if I was left to myself, I wouldn't do, and I'd be quite content. But I don't think that option's available to me. And in Christ, don't we become better? I mean, don't we really, don't we really become better uh, people uh, for the sake of others and for his sake? We can lay the right foundation or the wrong one. The decision to act is framed by transcendent meaning, the revelation of God in Christ, and the meta-narrative of salvation history. The gospel has given us a plausibility structure, one that is not shared by the world. Self-denial and self-fulfillment converge, in the will of the Father in heaven. That's quite a description to bring to an end the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the typically religious first column, sermons have a way of easing us out the door into the virtual reality of business as usual. Religion settles for an indecisive maybe, a kind of -of middle-of-the-road Christianity that appeals to the conventional wisdom of the age. Jesus noted that on that day there will be many religious who speak of the Lord, but the Lord will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You know, that's one of the most sobering texts. in scripture. I will come back to this um, in our final week, next week. But uh, the Sermon on the Mount concludes with uh, Jesus uh, describing... Um, true and false disciples, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Oh, well, it's hard to think of anything that more is more sober in Scripture than that, because here they're prophesying, they're they're preaching, um, they're doing all sorts of things in the name of the Lord, and that's where I think um, you know in literature we call it an inclusio that the beginning and the end sort of fit together, and I think that the answer to this particular paragraph at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is found in the Beatitudes again. Because the people who are doing this are not identifying themselves as poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom. They are not being persecuted for Christ's sake. Religion's an ego trip for them. Uh, And we've, you know... Yeah. um, We'll say more next week about this particular text. Um, Let's just read the late modern secular. The secular age is self-reliant, insisting that there is no God to ask and nothing outside of ourselves to seek. Neither meaning nor salvation are gifts to be given. There is only the meaning we make for ourselves out of nothing. There is no choice between the narrow way and the broad way. There is no prophetic word other than the self. I am my own way, I think, is uh, the kind of message of the age. Well, uh, I better conclude. Um, Let's pray. Lord God, continue to drive us into the Sermon on the Mount by your Spirit that it may be descriptive of us and who we are as a people of God. You gave it to us for that. May we receive it and accept it and... And by your Holy Spirit, live into it. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray together. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting,
1: we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.